Hello and welcome to episode number 22 of People Who Matter. My name is Harley and this is the show where I interview entrepreneurs, musicians, and uniquely successful people to find out what sets them apart and why they are so damn happy. You can find all the links and show notes for today's episode at peopleshow.co or in the show description on whatever podcast app you are using. You can also join the conversation around today's episode on social media using the hashtag PWM22. Hello, 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 all you fine folks out there. I'm excited to have you guys listening today. My guest on today's episode is none other than Hal Elrod, the author, most famously, of The Miracle Morning. Now, I remember when I first heard about the book The Miracle Morning, I thought, oh man, someone took my idea for a book because I had been thinking about writing something like that. And you know, people say that kind of thing all the time. I wouldn't have gotten around to it, and I'm really, really glad this book exists because... Mornings are, they, uh, we, we talked about it in this episode, but a morning routine can change your life. I'm just now getting back into it myself, and I can tell you the difference is mind-blowing. It's unbelievable how much, of, how, much a dif- how much of a difference it makes when you get up in the morning with purpose, knowing what you're going to do, and just getting to it, and just doing those few things that really, really help you get on track. For me, it's journaling, it's meditating, and listening to a philosopher's note, as I talked about in episode 17 with Charlotte. But before I get too far into that, I want to let you guys know that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial by going to booksmatter.co. And again, that's booksmatter.co. Now, they've got over 150,000 titles for you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I listen on my computer as well. Um, I've been telling you about what I've been listening to a lot lately, and it's still the same books. One of them is a 36-hour long audiobook called The Snowball about Warren Buffett, and it's amazing. (laughs) You might want to get the abridged version if you're not up for 36 hours of it. I find it fascinating. There's a lot of really cool anecdotes, but I got to recommend today that you check out Hal's book, The Miracle Morning. Because you can get that on Audible. And you guys can get that for free by going to booksmatter.co. So highly, 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 highly recommend you do that. And for now, I'm just going to tell you a little more about Hal. And then we can get right into the interview. Now, what do I want to tell you? A little background. Um, one of the reasons Hal is well known is because he died. Yeah, he actually died for six full minutes. He got in a car crash, and he tells that story on this episode, so I won't get into it now, but I find that just amazing that someone has had that experience. (laughs) I remember as a kid, uh, a friend of my dad, I remember he died for a while. Uh, He was in a moped accident, and I just remember thinking, how does that even work? But Hal and I talk about that. He also talked about the fact that that was not his lowest rock bottom, which I found fascinating, and... Yeah, I don't have a whole lot else to say. I really hope you guys enjoy this interview. I know I had a lot of fun doing it. Hal, thank you so much. So enjoy, everyone enjoy my interview with Hal Elrod. Hal, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Harley, I'm pumped, man. This is going to be fun. It is, it is. So let's start out with something super simple. Where are you okay. from? Um, uh, from as in, let me, let me complicate it. From as in grew up or where do I live now? Grew up. Let's talk about your childhood. Oh, I like it. Um, I grew up in Oakhurst, California, which is um, about 45 minutes north of Fresno and about 45 minutes south of Yosemite national park so kind of grew up in the mountains okay getting a vague picture what was it like yeah. growing up in the mountains there um it was actually cool i uh I, you know we we have a, a lake nearby and, and we would water ski in the in the summer and then we have uh the you know the ski slopes are about 40 minutes away so we would snow ski in the in the winter and um i uh in fact in from fourth grade to eighth grade every friday while there was snow on the ground 
we got to skip school and go skiing. It was actually a part of our school. It was called Mountain Area Ski School. So uh, lots of fun time to be had. Tell me about that. That sounds fascinating. So yeah, so it was cool that basically every Friday, yeah, I don't know how they got away with this, or they probably still do it, I don't know, but every Friday, um, the kids would bring all their gear to school, like the kids, the parents would drop us off with our snow skis and our snow boots, (laughs) you know, this was before snowboarding was really big, Mm -hmm. and um, and they would, you know, they'd load it into the bus and go, and, and it was cool, my dad was actually an instructor for this program, so instead of having to take the slow bus through the mountains and get, we, you know, normally get up there at 11 a.m. Um, my dad and I, we, we'd leave our house at 7 a.m. and be up there when the mountain opened at 8 a.m. So we'd get to ski for three hours before the rest of the school got there. And then when this, when this, when the students left back on the bus for school, which was at like, I don't know, you know, 2 p.m. or something, um, we would stay up there for another two or three hours and, uh, and, and keep cow. skiing and boarding. Yeah, it was a good time. So how do you think that affected your life? Because that's a pretty unique experience. Um, I don't know. You know, I think that at that point I was kind of, you know, I, I don't I don't really attest too much to I, I was so young. You know, I didn't really mm-hmm. I don't know that it formed any long standing like I want a life of freedom where I can spend Fridays on the slopes, you know. <laughs> Um, that wouldn't come until later. But I think that when, you know, really, a really interesting component growing up when I was 11 years old, my parents bought a grocery store and, uh, they actually, they bought a grocery store built in 1945 to where back, you know, back in the day where like the house, they would always build their business with like a house on attached to it or on top of it. So for us, if you were in check stand number one, ringing people up and you took six steps forward out of the check stand, that was the front door to our living room and our kitchen. Wow. So that was a really cool way to grow up. Like we would, you know, if we wanted cereal in the morning, we just walked out in our pajamas, you know, said hi to our the people that worked there and got food and uh, could eat whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. And uh, and it was cool at nighttime. We'd actually, when the store was closed, we'd, we'd turn on this, we'd crank the stereo, we put on our roller blades and we'd turn, me and my friends would turn it into like a, a roller skating ring. <laughs> that sounds like a blast. Yeah, so it, was, it was pretty fun. At that point, when you were a kid, what did you imagine your life looking like? Did you kind of look forward? Yeah, I don't know that I had. When I was 11, my parents bought the grocery store. The one thing that they did is they had me start working. And, and, and that was actually probably, you know, if I look back at one of the first defining moments and kind of what shaped me today, when I was 11 um, and I started, you know, my parents said, hey, if you want something, you have to pay for it. Like all my friends' parents bought them Nike shoes and whatever they wanted, right? Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, no, you're going to work for it. If you want it, you're going to work for it. And it's funny. I actually haven't even articulated this until this moment. But um, the, the the two words that I've, I've, I always reinforce with my daughter are the words earn it. Whenever she asks for anything, I said, sweetie, you got to earn it. Right. And now she knows that I go, she asked for something. I go, sweetie, what do you think you need to do? She's like, earn it. She's five years old. Right. <laughs> like, I have to earn it. I have to earn it. I know. I know. Right. But, but, but that for me at 11, I start, you know, I, I, my parents stopped buying me anything other than holidays that I didn't need. You know, if I wanted something, go to the movies, buy a video game, I had to pay for it myself based on working for at that time, $4 and 25 cents an hour. <laughs> wow. So kind of moving into your early teens, like, so you were, you were just talking about 11 years old there, but how about 13, 14, 15? What? So the next, yeah, just go for it. The next defining moment in my life came at 15. Um, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, my, you know, I was a sophomore in high school and my best friend, Jake, he, uh, his brother was supposed to DJ and his brother was like, I don't know, 19 or something. And he was supposed to DJ the school dance, like our old, you know, alma mater or seventh grade junior high dance. And, uh, he got sick at the last minute and my buddy Jake called and he said, Hal, uh, do you, you want to help me DJ the school dance? My brother Colin is sick and you know, he's not let me use all of his equipment and, um, you know, it should be fun. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a blast. So we went, we DJ the dance, we put out a tip cup and I think we got like $7 and 25 cents or 50 cents or something in tips, you know, little bonus lesson, right? Seventh graders don't have a lot of money, but, <laughs> um, but that was where a dream was born. I was like, wow, this is fun. And I just made, at that time, I'm, I'm like fired up, like, dude, $7? And I just played music for four hours? That's amazing, right? And um, so that the dream was born. I want I want to be, I want to be like a DJ, like a, have a DJ business. And so my I, I, I convinced my dad to finance like $1,500 worth of equipment for me uh, my, my mom would have said no in a heartbeat. My dad was always a pushover, you know, and, uh, my dad, I convinced him, but he said, how you got to make the payments on, it. you know, it's like, you know, I don't know, 
$100 a month for 15 months or something. And, um, and so I, working at the grocery store, made the payments, but I quickly, I booked a wedding and I started earning $75 an hour um, playing music at everything from weddings to car shows. I grew up in the mountains, kind of a hick town, right? I'm, I'm DJing car shows and hoedowns and school dances and, you know, whatever. And, um, but that was a huge game changer because I was like, wait a minute, my friends are working crappy jobs. Actually, I was still working at the grocery store. So what I would call kind of a crappy job, you know, it wasn't the best. Um, and, you know, and making five bucks an hour. And I'm making $75 an hour playing music. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, and that's where I had, you know, kind of the vision of like, I want to only do something that I enjoy doing and that I can make a lot of money at. You know, that, that's really where that was born. And I, I did that all throughout high school and, and continued to DJ. And, you know, I'd only work one one night a week, but I'd make more than my friends that worked five, you know, five days a week. Wow. So what did it feel like the moment when you realized that your dad had enough confidence in you to lend you that money? Because that's that's a big step giving a 15 year old fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And I, I mean, I know for me, I've always been a really grateful guy and not taking things for granted, you know, so um, I was just very appreciative. And I think for me, I probably didn't get to appreciate the moment in the way of I was appreciative, but it was more like, like convincing my dad that I would pay him back. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's where my energy and focus was so much so that I didn't even, you know, really fully appreciate what he was doing for me because I was just like, dad, I'm going to, I was almost, I, I went from, you know, being excited and, 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 and you know, convincing I'd pay him back to going, holy crap, I have to pay him back now, <laughs> you mm. know? So I think there was a lot of uh, mixed emotions, but it was mostly excitement. You know, I was just, I was so fired. I mean, he got me a fog machine, you know, strobe lights, laser lighting. <laughs> like, did I was, you know, 18 inch uh, Sherwin Vega speakers, you know, with 18 inch subwoofers. I mean, it was, you know, the whole bit, it was pretty cool. Oh, wow. That I, I want to go to that party. Oh my God. <laughs> Dude, well, forget the party. You want to go to my, my back then I set it up in my bedroom. Oh, no way. I had like a 16 or like a 12 by 12, like a tiny bedroom. And I stacked the two 18 inch Sean Vegas in the corner. I set the fog machine and the laser lights. I hung all those up and I ran wires to the front, like to to the entrance of my room so that I could control it from my bed or right when I walked in. So I would have my friends come over, right? And I would, I would have the fog, like the room be full of fog, laser lights, you know, the beams of light piercing the fog, and then bone thugs of harmony just banging on the 18-inch subwoofers. And then my mom would run upstairs and go, hell, we're running a business down here. Turn off your speaker. Because <laughs> the grocery store was open right underneath my bedroom. Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. So it sounds like, well, actually... I don't want to project here. This could go either way, but do, would you say you were kind of a wild kid at that age? Because that scenario, I could see it going a couple ways. I was a total wild. I, I was a I was a class clown, kind of wild. You know, got arrested for being, um, you know, intoxicated at a party. Uh, so much so that when the police officer was trying to wake me up off the couch, I yelled at him and told him to leave me alone. And anyway, so and that was it. I think seventeen. Uh, so yeah, so I, I wasn't the, you know, I, I, I gave my parents a lot of stress, a lot of worries, not, I wasn't ever a bad kid. I was always really good hearted and nice, but I was just always real mischievous. Like when I was 15, my parents went out of town for the night and I decided to take their car and just drive all over town. Um, and uh, I got busted. They caught me cause the neighbor ratted me out, <laughs> which is probably a good thing, but, uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so I was always, you know, I was always in a lot of like minor trouble, you know. Um, I actually set a record my senior year of high school. I had the hour, uh, most hours of detention that any student had ever had, and I think it was 180 hours of detention. So it was more than I could serve in, you know, in like an entire like four years, let alone one. And uh, you know, I forgot how I we somehow I had to do something to, to for the for them to let me graduate or whatever. But but yeah, so I, I wasn't a world beater. I, I wasn't an achiever. I didn't get good grades. I, I wasn't popular. I wasn't um I wasn't an athlete. You know, and I always share that because I think it's you know it's help it's helpful for me. You know, when I'm anyone that I admire that I that's that is more successful than me or that I'm trying to learn from a model. Like when you learn, you know, if, they, if they're one of those kids that was always good at everything they did, it's kind of discouraging because I don't relate to that. Right. But yeah. so for me, I'm like, hey, I was a total I, had, I, I didn't have a path. Yeah, I did the DJ thing. 
you know, I had my first radio show when I was 15. I started hosting a radio show every week. Um, so that was a really cool thing. But, but again, none of these things required a lot of discipline. You know, I was following my passion, my heart, doing things that were fun, but I didn't have work ethic. I didn't have discipline. You know, some of the things that are really necessary to achieve a high level of success. So I didn't start out with, with a lot of signs that I was going to, you know, I was going to be a world beater or, or be really successful. And I think my parents were really worried about me, you know, making something of myself. So with that picture you've painted, I, I have a very clear image of this kid now yeah. moving <laughs> forward. Did you make a conscious decision as to whether or not you wanted to go to college? Um, I mean, not, you know, just like most, most young people, uh, you just make the, you don't even really make the decision. It's almost just kind of, it's, it's just, it's just the normal flow of things, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, what do you do after high school? You go to college, right? And so for me, that was it. It was just, you know, I didn't know, I, I wanted to be a nationally syndicated radio disc jockey at that time. And the, you know, that, that was my dream. And, and I, I was like, I don't know if I need college, but I thought, you know, I'll go to college. It's all my friends are going to college. And, um, and then my, my goal was, I'm going to try to get a, get like an internship at a radio station and, uh, and then pursue that dream. And I got, I, I, I didn't get an internship during the semester school semesters, but right after my first year of college was over, uh, I, I went in and I interviewed. It's funny. I, I love that you're starting this way. These are stories I never tell, which is cool because I do <laughs> like hundreds of podcast interviews, but it's always a lot more current. But um, uh, I, so I went into the radio and there's a great lesson in this, right? I went into the radio station interview and um, my mom had given me the advice. I called her. I'm like, mom, I got an interview at the radio station. I'm nervous. I don't have any, you know, I mean, I, I had I had a year's worth of DJing in high school, but I didn't, I don't know if that was going to count or get me a real, a real gig here. And um, what should I do? And she, my mom was is just very confident. And she just told me, she goes, look, when I got hired, you know, I was 16 and I got hired to be, you know, I forgot to like be the manager at a grocery store or something. And she just went in and she goes, look, she said, I give you my word. I will do everything. I will be the best employee that you've ever had. And give me, give me two weeks, give me a month, whatever you think is fair. And give me a trial period. And if I do not live up to that, if I, if you're not glad you hired me and if I'm not the best employee you've ever had, let me go. Right. And, and I'll, and I'll, I'll leave gladly. You know, and that's, you know, so she told me that. And so I was, I was still nervous, but I went in and I told the guy that exactly that. And he's like, how can I say no to that? You're hired. You know, so I got my first gig on, on the radio and, um, uh, yeah, anyway, so I, I kind of went on a tangent there, but yeah, that, that was how my college picture started. And then I never, um, I, I, I got hired, it, uh, uh, three weeks into my, into my DJ gig, um, my buddy who sold Cutco cutlery, you ever heard of Cutco before? Yeah. Yeah, so Cutco kitchen knives, right? Uh huh. So my buddy sold Cutco, and I thought it was kind of a weird. I'm like, you know, he sold it in people's houses. I thought it was kind of weird. You know, it's not not like a multi level thing, but but it was a direct sales thing where you 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 know you call prospects, you get appointments, you get referrals, and you just keep repeating that process. And he always told me, oh, you should, you know, yeah, you'd be great at it. I can get you a job. And I was like, dude, I'm a DJ. Like, thanks, but no thanks, right? I I don't want to sell knives. And long story short, I went with him to the office one day. I met the manager. He hired me. I, he, you know, he basically talked. You know, gave me a really compelling reason. I should give it a shot. You can make really good money. And my first ten days on the job, I broke the all-time uh, company record for the western half of the United States, where I sold more in my first ten days than anyone in the western half of the United States ever had. And I think only one person ever had done had done more than I did. But um, but and I earned. I think it was like thirty six hundred dollars my first ten days, and you know, I was 19 years old and I went, dude, I'm making like $10 an hour as a DJ <laughs> or I can make $3,000 in 10 days doing this. I'll take this. Right. So that's when I gave up my dream to be a DJ. Uh, and, and I never, uh, never went back to call. I went back to college, um, but never went back with the intention of getting a degree. A degree. I, I took multiple classes based on, you know, public speaking and marketing and topics I wanted to educate myself on. But, but never never had the intention of getting a degree uh, after that first year. So it sounds like you were really willing to move move on to other things that seemed like better paths for you. How did it feel leaving behind both college and being a DJ? Um, I think that I was so excited about the, you know, for me, I was so excited about the future. And, and even, I mean, it's the, really at that time, the present, that, uh, that I had found this niche, this career where, I, I never, I've never considered myself a good salesperson in terms of by the book. 
I still to this day, you know, I, 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 the way I've always sold anything is I'm just, I try to be very authentic and come from the heart and, and I just naturally have a very excitable personality. So that kind of transfers, I think, to the people that I'm showing anything to or talking about. Right. So I'm always authentic and I'm enthusiastic and, and that's it. You know, and, and, I, and I will, I would never, you know, it's all, I gotta be something, something I believe in. And so for me, um, I was so excited about, you know, wow, this is like, I found something I'm really good at and I did enjoy it. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, the monetary rewards, not to mention I was winning, you know, limo rides and, and, and company trips and, you know, dinner, like all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, and the environment, I actually, I shouldn't forget to mention this, probably the most important part is my, my mentor, my, my manager slash mentor, Jesse Levine, uh, he was the most positive person I'd ever met in my life. And he really instilled in me the, for the first time ever in my life, the idea of like having a positive attitude. And, and, and I really, you know, the culture that he created in his office, it felt like a family. We were all really supportive of each other. It was a real team environment. And again, it was very, very, very positive. So I think that, that for me, you know, it was so much more appealing than college or DJing on the radio that it actually wasn't hard to leave those things behind. So was that the first time in your life you had had a real mentor? Um, yeah, I mean, if I look back, I, you know, I learned, I've learned a lot from my parents. Uh, when I was eight years old, my baby sister, Amory, uh, who was a year and a half, she died in my mother's arms. And it was just uh, the four of us at home, uh, me, or sorry, the three of us, me, uh, my mom across the hall, and, uh, and then my baby sister, uh, and my, my, uh, my, my other sister was gone, and my dad was at work. Um, and I woke up to my mother screaming, and I ran across the hall, and my, my, you know, my baby sister was dead in her arms. And uh, within a matter of obviously, it was, you know, just just a horrific experience for everybody, especially my mom and dad. But within a matter of months, I don't remember if it was, you know, it was like three to six months, my mom founded a support group for bereaved parents, for parents that had lost their children. And I really learned from an early age, like how to turn a tragedy into a triumph or an adversity into an advantage, right? And that really served me later in life. I mean, into this day, it, it helped shape me into who I am. But, but I think that, you know, that, you know, my mom and dad were my first mentors. Also, they became entrepreneurs. I, you know, I learned a lot from my mom and dad. But in terms of a non-parental mentor, that was really uh, my first mentor. And, you know, he was in, you know, in my wedding, you know, 10 years later. And, mm. you know, I just talked to him yesterday. I mean, still a very good friend. Wow. That, yeah, that's that's so important. It's a theme I see with everyone I talk to. There's always really yeah. those strong mentorship relationships. But so that that realization that you could turn an adversity into an advantage, I like the way you put that. How did that apply to um, this next turning point in your life, the car crash that you talk a lot about? Yeah, so in, in Cutco, um, we learned something in our in training. Uh, you know, we do a three-day training in the beginning, and my my mentor Jesse taught us something that he calls the five-minute rule, which simply says that when things don't go your way, it's okay to be negative, but not for more than five minutes. Like literally, set your timer on your phone, and bitch, moan, complain, vent, you know, punch a wall, whatever you got to do, you know, to feel the frustration or the anger or the sadness or whatever the emotion is. Feel it for five minutes. Allow yourself that, but then after five minutes. You, you, you can't change it. So there's, you know, you, you can't change it at that point. It's already happened. So it basically taught us that you accept it and you move on and you focus 100% of your energy, not on the thing that is now five minutes in the past, but on what you want and what's in your control, what you can do to get there. And that became a huge, you know, that, that, I mean, I spent a year and a half living that lesson. Uh, and then one night I gave a speech at a Cutco conference I got a standing ovation, which was kind of a special moment because I, I, at that time I had already decided after speaking at all these Cutco conferences that I had like this new dream of one day I want to be a professional, you know, keynote speaker. And so I got a standing ovation that night and it was like, wow, you know, it was affirming to me like this, maybe, yeah, maybe this is what I'm meant to do. I could really do this. And that night I got in my brand new Ford Mustang, which I had just bought with my own money three weeks earlier off the lot, you know, so kind of a proud purchase, you know, I'm 20 years old at that time, bought my own new car and I'm driving it home that night when a drunk driver gets on the freeway going the wrong way in a full size Chevy truck, much larger than my little white Ford Mustang. 
He gets on the freeway. He merges over. He thinks he's in the slow lane, but he's going the wrong way. So he's in the fast lane headed against traffic. He's doing 80 miles an hour. Now, I don't remember what I'm about to tell you, Harley. I only know this from uh, police reports, eyewitnesses, hospital records. But around 11.36 p.m., I think, roughly, this full-size Chevy truck comes barreling straight at my car on the highway. I'm doing 70 miles an hour. He's doing 80 miles an hour. And our cars crash head-on, crushing the front of my Mustang, shattering the windshield, you know, the, the roof starts to buckle, my airbag explodes, and I'm sent spinning off of the for or off of the Chevy truck, off of the drunk driver, my car spins sideways, perpendicular to, to oncoming traffic, and the car behind me at 70 miles an hour crashes full force in, into my door, my driver's side door, smashes the door into my thigh, into my arm, into the left side of my body. And instantly, I break 11 bones. Um, and for those of you that are faint at heart, you might want to fast forward for 30 seconds just because I always get asked this, so I, I, I just, I'll share it. But my femur, the biggest bone in the human body, right, it broke in half, and one half came up the side of my leg. I broke my pelvis in three places. It was crushed between the center console. My humerus bone behind my bicep broke in half. I shattered my elbow, severed the radial nerve in my left arm. My ear was almost completely severed. My eye socket was destroyed to be eventually rebuilt in titanium. I ruptured my spleen. I punctured my lung. And the top of the roof, it the, the roof caved in. And the metal of the roof sliced through the, the, the cloth of the ceiling. And it sliced a V in the top of my head. And unable to withstand the pain... I, you know, immediately I, I, I started losing blood and I, I was in a coma and it took them almost an hour to cut me out of the car. And when they finally did, I had lost so much blood that I actually died. I was clinically dead, you know, stopped breathing, heart stopped beating, of course. And I was clinically dead for approximately six minutes while they worked on reviving me um, on, you know, on a helicopter to airlift me to the hospital. And thankfully they didn't give up because it took about six minutes and they finally, you know, using the defibrillators and shocking me back to life, they brought me back to life and rushed me to the hospital, um, you know, where I would undergo surgery and spend six days in a coma and eventually wake up to be told that I would never walk again. Wow. See, I knew you were going to tell that story, but I even the prep I have here, there's no no real way to come right in and ask a follow up. That's just unbelievable. It's hard to imagine that you're even alive. But, yeah, I, I, well, as I always say, you only live twice. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a really good one to remember, actually. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. what what did it feel like? Maybe not physically, but emotionally. What was it like emotionally when you woke up? So I don't remember waking up. Um, my first memory is about a week, uh, maybe six days or a week after I came out of the coma. Um, however, I've been told this story you know, from, from uh, so many different people, so many different angles of what it was like those first couple of days. I, I actually broke a record in the hospital. Um, I had the most visitors that any patient had ever had. And I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't say that. I don't brag about that or anything, but it was literally because of the Cutco company. I would say 90% of my visitors or 80% of them were my colleagues in Cutco. I mentioned it was such a tight knit group and they literally came from across the country, flew out to be by my side in the hospital while I was recovering. Um, and then of course my friends and family came from all over the country to, you know, to support me as well. But, um, so here, here's what I know. Um, as you know, with, I had such bad brain damage because my head was just, you know, smashed, if you will. Um, the, uh, essentially I didn't remember from minute to minute, like you could have been, you know, my best friend Harley and come visit me for, you know, three hours in the hospital. We could talk, reminisce. You could go to lunch and come back. And I would literally have been like, Harley, did you hear I was in a car accident? I, I would have had no memory of spending three hours with you. So the problem with that is I came out of the coma and I was lethargic and I was, I was in pain and I was, you know, I was, I was, I was, you know, confused. I mean, imagine, right. You wake up and you're in a hospital bed and you're hooked up to IVs. And your, you know, your eye is patched, your are your ears, you know, I mean, has a pat, your your legs up in a sling, you know, I mean, you're just right, and you and you have no idea why. So the crazy thing is, because of my short term memory loss, my my poor parents would tell me what happened to me and have to kind of, you know, watch me go through the mixed emotions of like, oh my god, I what, you know, I, I can't even believe it. 
then I would, you know, m- you know, minutes would go by and I would forget and they would have to tell me again. Then I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up and I would have no idea why I was in where I was. And they would have to tell me again. So my poor mom and dad had to relive this nightmare of, of, of telling me this over and over and over again. And, you know, I, I never got it until I had kids. You know, now I have a five-year-old daughter and, and a two-year-old son. And um, now, from the point of a, being a parent, I really feel like my mom and dad had the worst of the whole experience. Like, I was unconscious, first of all, for the first six days while they were by my bedside praying that I was going to live, right? I mean, you know, so I think my mom and dad had the worst. But according to my parents, after a few days, my my short-term memory started to seep into the long-term memory. And I would actually, I finally got bearings of where I was and, and, and why I was there and how I got there. And according to my mom and dad, I immediately was back to my old self. And I was positive and making jokes. And believe it or not, one of the first things they said I started doing was I was trying to sell Cutco to the doctors and nurses. <laughs> and my parents were mortified. They're like, how? Because because of the brain damage, I would try to sell doctors. I'd be like, hey, what kind of knives do you have? Do you cook? Right? And I would try to sell them, hey, Cutco, da, da, da. And then, of course, 10 minutes later, I forgot that I had that conversation. So I would do it again, right? And like my poor, my parents were like, stop. You know, they're just mortified and tell me to stop. And I, I go, mom do you know how much money a doctor makes? Like, don't tell me this is like the perfect opportunity. I'm not going to waste this opportunity. Right. And, um, the, uh, uh, where was I going with that? I forgot, but anyway, yeah, see the brain damage is still, is still present, but, uh, but anyway, so, so that's it. And, and, and then I think that here's, uh, if you have a question, then I've got, I've got a real powerful kind of anecdote that, that really explains how I responded and, and, and the takeaway for, for anyone listening. I would love to hear it. So it was about a week after I came out of the coma and the, so, you know, I was in the coma for six days and it's a week after that. So it's about, about, you know, a little less than two weeks after the accident. I've been told that I may never walk again. Um, you know, I'm in a lot of pain. Um, my body is, I mean, just wrecked and scarred, you know, beyond belief, right? I've got, I've got metal rod in my leg, screws in my elbow, rod in my arm, metal plates in my eye. Um, they're telling me that I might never, I might not see in that eye again, right? They really didn't know um, how bad, you know, how, how if there was a lot of trauma to the eye. I mean, there was just, it was just the future was kind of grim. And my parents were called in that day by the doctor, and they sat them down and they said, "Mr. and Mrs. Elrod, we're concerned with Hal. Uh, first of all, physically, he's he's doing great. His vitals are good." You know, I mean, we're in the clear because I actually flatlined twice in my coma. The first six days in my coma, my poor parents were sitting on my bedside when the monitor went off, the sirens went off and I died again. And I did that. That happened twice. So the doctor said, you know, physically we're in the clear. His vitals are good. We're, we're you know, we're going to be OK. Um, they said, but mentally and emotionally, we're concerned with how they said, because every time we're around him or we interact with him, whether it's, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the therapist, um, Hal's always smiling and laughing and joking. And they said, and and they make him, he's making us laugh. They said, that's, that's frankly, that's not normal. That's not normal for a 20 year old young man who is being told he may never walk again. So they said, we have seen this before. We believe that Hal's in a state of denial. We believe that his reality, his, present and potential future reality are so painful, so unimaginable for him that he can't handle it. He just, he simply cannot accept what fate, you know, the, the hand that has been dealt to him. So he has checked out of reality and he's, he's essentially delusional. And so they said, we've seen this before. It's, it's kind of common, because, you know, for someone that's in such a traumatic accident and their future, you know, is uncertain. It's common for people this to happen. It, it's a, some, you know, it's a response that, that isn't isn't something we haven't seen. But they said we need to get him to admit how he's really feeling here in the hospital, where it's a safe, controlled environment. We don't want it to happen, you know, out in the real world where it can come crashing down on him. So they said we want you to talk to him and find out how he's really feeling. Is he sad? You know, I mean, is he is he is he depressed that this happened? It's it's normal to feel that way, but he's got to feel it. He's got to talk about it. He can't deny those emotions. They said maybe he's angry. Is he angry that this happened? You know, he's got to face that anger. We talked about it. Is he scared? Is he scared of the future? Is he scared about what might happen? 
let's get him to talk about it. They said, so we need you as his mom and dad to go and get him to open up. So my dad came in that night and I didn't know this conversation happened, but my dad basically explained the doctor's concern. And he said, so how, how are you really feeling? I know that when your friends here, you're laughing and joking or reminiscing, but how are you really feeling? You know, are you, when the lights go out at night and you're by yourself staring at the ceiling, thinking about, you know, your broken bones and the doctors are saying you might not walk again. And the, you know, the brain damage and all of that, are you sad? Are you scared? Are you angry? Are you depressed? It's, it's, it's normal to feel that way. Let's talk about it. And I could tell my dad, like his eyes were red, like he was about to start crying or he had been crying. And obviously there was a lot of crying at this time for my parents, especially I could tell he was very concerned. So I really thought about his questions. Am I sad? Am I scared? Am I depressed? Am I angry? And I looked at my dad and I kind of shook my head and I smiled. I said, dad, I thought you knew me better than that. And he looked at me back, you know, kind of like, what do you mean? And I said, dad, remember, I live by the five minute rule that I learned in Cutco. It's okay to be negative, but not for more than five minutes. It's been two weeks since my accident. I'm way past my five minutes. And you know, he, I don't think he bought it. And he goes, Hal, he goes, look, this isn't, this isn't like a no sale. Okay. This is a big deal. It's, it's okay to feel those feelings. It's okay to feel them. And I said, dad, you're not listening to me. I said, look, I can't change that. I was in a car accident, but I get to choose how I feel about it. I get to choose my attitude. And I said, I've already decided there is only one of two possibilities and they're both going to be positive. You know, and he was curious, what do you mean? And I said, number one, the doctors are right. And I will never walk again. I said, and I've already decided I'm going to, I'm going to turn that into my dream of being a professional speaker. And I'm going to be the happiest person you've ever seen in a wheelchair because that's my choice. I'm in a wheelchair. I can either be miserable in a wheelchair or happy in a wheelchair. I'm only choosing being happy. That's the first possibility. So that, it is what it is. If, I, if I'm in a wheelchair, I'm in a wheelchair. The second possibility, and this is the one, Dad, that I'm putting my energy into. This is the one that I'm banking on. I'm putting my faith in it. I'm believing it, and I'm thinking about it. I'm visualizing it. I will walk again. You know, the doctors are experts in medicine, but they're not experts in me. And I'm going to put all my energy into believing I can walk again while I simultaneously accept that worst-case scenario, maybe I don't, but I can handle either scenario. I, whatever pans out, I'll accept it, and I'll make the best of it. And, you know, my dad went back to the doctors and told him that. And that's where the seed was planted. By the way, the doctor said, your son should write a book because that's not normal, you know. And um, but but I don't think it was a coincidence that a week later, Harley, a week later, the doctors came in with x-rays and they said, hey, how, you know, and my parents were there. They said, Mr. and Mrs. Elrod, we don't know how to explain this, but but how your body is has, is healing at an incredible rate. And we're going to let you take your first step tomorrow in therapy. And it was like, it went from never walk again to they, at that point, they had said maybe like in a year, you know, maybe I could revisit, see how my body healed over the next year. But it went from that to three weeks after the crash, two weeks after I woke up from the coma, they took me to, they wheeled me down the next morning and I took three steps. And that was the path back to my, you know, my recovery. I got out of the hospital uh, a month later. Wow. So, at that point, what steps did you kind of briefly, because there, there's a lot I want to get to about where you're yeah, at yeah. now, but what steps did you take to recreate your life after that? So, um, I, I mean, you know, every day I focused on what do I need to do to get better? You know, and at first it was learning to walk again. Um, and then when I got out of the hospital, uh, there was a Cutco sales contest that had just started. And I begged my parents to, to let me go out to like, basically, you know, I didn't, I had brain damage. Like I had a horrible you know, memory, my, I, I had bad judgment because of the brain damage and, and I could, I could barely walk, you know, I was in a wheelchair most of the time, so I couldn't drive. So I begged my parents to drive me to, to, to appointments, uh, with customers to, to, so I could, so I could I actually wanted to try to go and, 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 you know, win a trophy, be one of the top 10 sales reps at this conference. And my parents said, they called the doctor and, you know, the doctor said, absolutely not. It's a horrible idea. And my parents said, yeah, bad idea. And, and basically, I, I got my dad, I think it was a weekend of the two-week sales contest, I, I begged my dad, and I just basically broke down. I'm like, Dad, I need this. I'm not doing this because I need to win a trophy or I need money or whatever. 
I'm doing this because I like I need to get back to like to my life and and I need to get confidence back. And so my dad's a sucker and, <laughs> you know, my mom's a lot harder. My dad's always a pushover, as I said. And so my dad um, drove me to appointments. And in the next four days, I sold seven thousand dollars of Cutco and I took fourth place at a conference with over 500 people at it. So that that's how I got my life back as fast as possible. So then moving forward, you, you had another, another big experience, um, the economic crash. And yeah. you said you slipped into depression for the first time in your life. Can yeah, you know, I, yeah I, call, I called, these are my two rock bottoms. The first rock bottom was the car accident. And the second rock bottom was surprisingly a lot worse than the first. And whenever I share that, usually people kind of go, wait a minute, you died. Like, what, did you die longer the second time? I don't get it. What's worse than dying? Isn't that kind of the bottom of all rock bottoms? Well, here's what it was. The U.S. economy crashed. And and most people can relate to this a lot more than they can relate to, you know, to to dying. But the economy crashed in 2008. Um, At that time, I had just bought my first brand new house. Um, I had launched a new business, a coaching business. Uh, I was speaking. I, I had my first book had come out um, and uh, bought my first house and, and bought my dream car. And it, it, it seemed like it was overnight and it happened. It felt like it was so fast, but life was, went from being great to, I lost over half of my clients. Um, I stopped exercising completely. Uh, I couldn't pay my bills. I lost my house, uh, you know, back to the bank. I, I got in the worst shape of my life physically. And as a result of so much fear, so much uncertainty, it was this six month downward spiral into a deep depression where I just felt stuck. I wanted, I, I literally was suicidal. I didn't want to live. I would never have done it because I would never do it to my parents after what they had already been through. But I feel like now I understand where people get to where it's a dark place and you don't see hope. You don't, you, you know, it's like you've tried to fix things and they just got worse and it's just, it's, it's so defeating. And um, yeah, so that, that was, that was it. That was the lowest point uh, in my life. And um, you know, if you want, we can kind of go into how I turned that around faster than I ever thought possible. Well, I'm curious to kind of dive into some of the emotion of that because yeah, yeah, I sure. I know I know the feeling. I've I know what you mean being so low, you can understand yeah. it. I I still try to wrestle with whether or not I was actually suicidal at one point. But yeah. how as a perpetually positive person, how did you deal with that? Did did you even have the coping mechanisms in place for that depression? Yeah, so here's 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 what it was. I think I didn't, I didn't realize this at the time. In fact, it wasn't till like years later looking back and I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. Duh. That makes sense. I, um, uh, I had been, I had been taking Adderall for my ADHD for the last, I don't know, maybe two years before that. And, or maybe a year and a half. And, uh, and, and that was kind of when Adderall was, I mean, at least for me, it was new. I had a friend of mine who I really respect. He's very smart. He said, Hal, uh, you should take this. It will really help you. You have bad ADHD because I have it and you have it worse than me. And I just respected his judgment. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. Went to the doctor, got diagnosed. Well, then I started reading articles, you know, stuff started coming out that Adderall is, dude, it's bad and it messes with your brain. And I was like, I, I, I don't want that at all. So I just cut cold turkey. I just stopped taking it. And, um, and so, you know, if you know anything about Adderall, it's, it's a narcotic. And so I literally went from being a drug addict. I mean, I didn't realize it was a drug addict, but I was taking a prescription drug every day, right? Um, a narcotic to then I stopped cold turkey. I completely quit once I found out it was there were harmful effects. And I was so it was right at that time when the economy started to crash. So it was this perfect storm of going through these hardcore withdrawals. But I didn't know that that I, I, I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't know that was going to happen um, with uh, with the downward spiral. So every all the tips that I knew about accepting the things I couldn't change, I think number one, the Adderall had a real physiological effect on the dep- creating the depression. And number two, I was I, I was used to accepting things I couldn't change. I had practiced that, but I, I, I didn't know how to handle it when it got worse and then you accepted it and then it got worse again and then you accepted it, but then it got worse again. So the fact that my circumstances continued to get worse and then I would accept it, but they would get worse. It would just, it kept getting worse. I just felt out of control and I didn't know how to turn it around. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's quite a, I I was going to say a double whammy, but it feels like more than a double whammy. So what was the hardest part about being depressed for that period of time? Part of it was my identity. You know, I mean, a part of it was just the literal depression when you're in a physical, mental and emotional state of depression, 
you can't think clearly, you're unhappy, right? You're just like, you're, you're just mentally and emotionally, you're just, you're, you're a mess, or at least I was. And, but, but the other hard part was I was a success coach. So my identity was re, just like a, a mess because I'm like, I'm a success coach who's failing miserably. So it, I didn't tell anyone. I kept it a secret because, you know, in my mind, I'm like, how, you know, my identity is a success coach. What do I tell people? Hey, I'm failing miserably. So do you know anyone that needs a good success coach? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like I, I'm, I need more clients desperately. Do you know anyone that needs a success coach that knows what it feels like to be in a really bad spot? You know, like I didn't know. So I didn't tell anybody. And um, so that was a hard part is my identity was, it was a real identity crisis. And also one of my highest values, Harley, is authenticity. So part of me was like, wait, wait, is it, do I owe it to my clients to tell them that I'm failing? Like I literally was having this. And again, when you're depressed, you're not, you're not thinking intelligently. So it makes it even harder to figure out what you should or shouldn't be doing. Right. So for me, I was like, do I have a, like an ethical responsibility to tell them that I'm failing? But wait, if I tell them I'm failing, then I'm going to lose all of my clients and I'll, I'll have nothing, you know? So it was a real mental, you know, roller coaster that I was on. So I feel like this word might be too mild for the situation, but it sounds like you really felt like a fraud. Yeah, no, no, that's, I mean, that, that's it. I, I felt, I struggled with that and feeling like a fraud. And again, when authenticity is something that you really, it's one of your deepest, you know, core values and then to feel like a fraud. But the fact that if you're, you know, I mean, yeah, so I didn't know. And, and I think I had a conversation with one of my friends um, and he did say, hell, you don't owe it to anyone to like, you know, you got to do what you got to do. You're not being dishonest by, you don't, you don't owe it to your clients to tell them your problems. Your job is to help them with their problems. They said, are you helping them with their problems? I said, yes. And so he, he helped me deal with that, but it wasn't, an, uh, he was the first person. It, it took, it took six months for me to have that conversation. Mm, yeah. So looking back on it, what's your relationship with that failure now? Um, it's like my relationship with all failure that every, I think every experience good or bad is an asset if you choose to learn from it. In fact, one of my, my mentors, John Reese, um, someone that I've learned a lot from, uh, that he says that every experience good or bad is an asset. You know, if you choose to learn from it, if you choose to see it that way. Hmm. So the, the positivity you keep talking about, I love how you can spin anything positively. I feel like that <laughs> a lot of the time myself. People are, are sometimes annoyed by it, but do you yep. feel like that positive outlook has a spiritual component to it? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that I think there is a spiritual component to it. And, and, and the way that I view spirituality is, is very, you know, um, I don't even know that I can articulate it, but it's very holistic. It, it has to do with a higher power. It also has to do with the collective consciousness of every human being, you know, every, every human being on the planet. Um, and, and I do believe that, you know, I think that there's, there's just, there's so much unseen that we don't understand, uh, and not even from, I think there's a lot of crossover between science and spirituality. In fact, I mean, the, the two are, are one and the same in a way. And again, I'm not an expert at articulating why I feel that way or what that looks like, but, but I think that there's truth to it. So I often, you know, for example, moments of inspiration where you have an idea that changes your life and you have no idea where that idea came from. Right. I think mm -hmm. that is that that is, you know, that is a spiritual element. Uh, but again, I, I don't you know, I don't claim that I know it all or, or any of it to where I can say this is where it comes from. It's it's this God that does. The, you know, what I mean, like I, it's it's you know, for me, spirituality is is, is a lot of unknown um, and it's a lot of tapping into that unknown uh, through through focusing on, you know, what you want and putting what you want out into the world, giving what you want to others and then being open to receiving it back. I think that kind of is the spiritual, you know, if I were to put a, you know, if I were to articulate it, that's how I would say it. So that connection between science and spirituality, how do you feel like that influences your decision-making in your day-to-day -day life? Ooh, that's a good question. So the nature of science and spirituality um, I think that there's an element of, of faith. You know, for me, there's there's a book that I'll write at some point. It's a speech that I've given quite a few times, and it's called The Miracle Equation. And without without spending too much time on this, 
Um, it's essentially something where uh, I was in a sales contest once and I was trying to sell more than I'd ever sold before. And I, I kind of reverse engineered it and I go, what would have to happen for me to pull off what I feel like is going to be a miracle? And I realized, you know what, I've got to maintain unwavering faith that I can reach my goal every moment of the entire period of time that I'm working towards it. Because the odds are I'm going to have self-doubt. I'm going to have days that you know don't go my way. I'm going to be behind where I need to be on track for my goal. So I've got to maintain unwavering faith that it's possible. And I thought the second component is I've got to put forth extraordinary effort, meaning I've got to do everything in my power to make it a reality. And if you think about it, most people, right, they don't maintain unwavering faith in a goal. They, they give up the faith as soon as it doesn't look like they're going to reach their goal, right? And then as soon as they give up the faith that it's possible, the effort goes right out the window. And so for me, I went through this this process of unwavering faith and extraordinary effort. And again, I don't have time to get into the whole story, but it happened in miraculous fashion. And it was literally the last appointment where I had the biggest order. And it was like the most, it was a foreign lady on vacation. It was the wrong woman at the appointment, like just the craziest circumstances. And she just happened to have been shopping the day before for what I want, for what I was selling. But her intuition told her she should wait to buy it. Like just crazy things, right? And I hit my goal, the last moment of the last second of the contest. And um, and I, I started calling that the miracle equation, unwavering faith and extraordinary effort. And I started studying athletes that pull off these miraculous, you know, like Tracy McGrady, an NBA player, scored 13 points in 35 seconds. That doesn't even make sense. But if you look at how he did it, he maintained unwavering faith, even though his team was down by like, 12 points with 35 seconds. There was no way seemingly that he could win. He maintained unwavering faith when the average person would give it up. Go, nah, there, dude, there's no way we could win. He maintained unwavering faith until the last moment and he put forth extraordinary effort and he, he made a miracle happen. He scored 13 points in 35 seconds. And so I really believe that that to me is the spiritual tactical strategy to achieve extraordinary results. How do you generate that unwavering faith? Um, I call it the miracle mantra because it doesn't mean that you don't have self-doubt. It means that you override the self-doubt with, with the mantra. And the mantra is, I will achieve my goal no matter what. There's no other option. And every time during that, you know, that first time I, I experimented with this, there were a lot of days where I, I felt like you know, I, had, you know, I had customers not show up to appointments or I did three appointments in a day or five appointments and nobody bought anything. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to, you know, one rejection after another, after another. And that tests your faith. So for me, I decided ahead of time that I'm going to have like this mantra that will allow me to have unwavering faith where whenever things go wrong and my, you know, I start having fear or self doubt, I'm going to roll down my windows of my car and shout at the top of my lungs, I will reach my goal no matter what. There is no other option. That was how I manifested unwavering faith in, in real time is with that mantra. I just said it over and over and over and over and over again. So much so that on the last day, going to my last appointment, when I was $3,000 away from my goal, the odds of selling $3,000 on one appointment are slim to none. But I just kept repeating, I'm going, and I was scared. It didn't mean I wasn't scared. In my mind, logically, I'm like, dude, there's no freaking way I'm going to sell $3,000 on one appointment. No way. But I didn't, I, I overrode the vo voice of doubt with the, the mantra, I will reach my goal no matter what, there's no other option. And when you say it enough, you actually, you start to, you know, you start to convince yourself that it could happen. So you, you made a great distinction that I really, really love. And I want to kind of dive into it a little bit. You said that you maintained that unwavering faith, but of course you were still afraid. Yeah. So what would you say your relationship with fear is? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think, you know, for me, I've, I've heard the saying, feel the fear and do it anyway, enough times that I just, I just, whatever I'm afraid of, I do it. Um, and, and the other, another phrase that, that goes along with that is that fear disappears in the face of action, right? Or, or, or the, you know, or the way to make fear disappear is do the thing you're afraid of and the fear disappears. So I think I have, you know, these mantras, these lessons that, that have been, you know, in my, you know, plan, kind of planning my subconscious, they, they help me direct my behavior. Um, and I think that's one thing that separates the most successful people in the world from people that are struggling is people that struggle they let their fear, and not even just their fear, their feelings in general, right? If they have their feel, if they don't feel motivated, 
they let that dictate what they don't do, right? That, oh, well, I'm not I'm motivated. I wish I was more motivated, right? Or I wish I didn't have the fear. They let their feelings dictate their actions. Whereas the world's most successful people, or, or even just successful people in general, they don't let their feelings always dictate their actions. They let their commitments dictate their actions, right? They do whatever they're committed to do to achieve anything that they want, even if they don't feel like it, and even if they're afraid of it. And I, that's what I try to do. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So in your daily life right now, what would you say the most gratifying thing that you get to do on a regular basis is? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I would, I would, you know, I would honestly say it's, you know, seeing my children every and my wife. I mean, I love like there's nothing I'm more grateful for than them. But in terms of something that is, is it been the game changer for me, uh, the, the greatest game changer for me is it's what I call the miracle morning. And um, I do it every day. Um, I, I, you know, and it's basically the premise of it is, you know, you wake up before you have to wake up. You think about most people, right? I call this the mediocre morning. Most people think about it. They set their alarm for the last possible minute to get out of bed and, you know, go to work or basically the last minute to not get fired, not lose their job, not get their kids kicked out of school. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's the mediocre morning. And I had the biggest distinction was back in 2008 when the U.S. economy crashed. That's how I turned it around is I had this realization that I needed to dedicate time every day to my personal development so that I could become the person that I needed to be to create the success I wanted. And I realized I wasn't doing that. I was waking up at the last minute, grinding out my day, watching TV for a couple hours, going to bed, rinsing and repeating, same routine every day. And, and I did a little research and I just basically realized that if I want – if I truly want to fulfill my potential, and at that time it wasn't even fulfilling my potential, it was just like I got to get out of this rut. I got to turn my life around and get, get, you know, get, get back above even so I can pay my bills. But I realized that it's about personal development. It's about dedicating time every day to becoming the person that you need to be that has the the knowledge and the skill and the belief and the confidence and the mindset and the habits that you need to create anything you want for your life. And so I created what I basically did some research and created what. I figured was the most extraordinary personal development routine known to man, or at least known to me. And I, I woke up, which was hard. I woke up an hour earlier that next day. This was like the, this epiphany I had one day. It was like, I had the conversation with my friend. He said, I should go for a run, listen to some audios some self-help audios, business audios. I did that. That's where I had this epiphany from a Jim Rohn quote, where he said, your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development because success is something you attract by the person you become. And I realized in that moment, again, I'm not becoming the person I need to be. So I created what I thought was the most extraordinary personal development routine known to man. Even though I wasn't a morning person, I decided the best time to do it was to start my day with that routine so I could put myself in a peak physical, mental, and emotional state every day to start the day. And I woke up the next morning at an hour earlier than I normally would. And the part, the funny part was, or the interesting thing is, it wasn't hard. I was actually, I felt like a kid on Christmas morning. I was excited to wake up. I went through my ritual and that was the morning that changed my life hardly because at 6 a.m. that morning, after one hour of doing this ritual, and now it's known as the miracle morning, but there was no name. It wasn't going to be a book. It wasn't going to be something that was changing other people's lives. It was for me, right? That's it. And that morning at 6 a.m., even though my life was still a wreck, right? I was $52,000 in personal credit card debt. I was losing my house. I was in the worst shape of my life physically, and I had been depressed. At 6 a.m. that morning, my depression was gone. I felt, well, I won't say it was gone, but I'll say it was like, it was, it was almost behind me. Because at that moment, I felt incredible. And I realized if I can start every day feeling this confident and energized and motivated, it's only a matter of time before my outer, outer world reflects my inner world. And I just didn't know how fast it could happen. I did it every day within two months. I had more than doubled my income. In fact, I almost tripled my income. Uh, I, as I mentioned, my depression was gone. And I went from being in the worst shape of my life physically to training for a 52-mile ultra marathon. I had never run before in my life other than in high school when you had to run the mile or whatever. And I, you know, I, and I, I, start, I ran 500 miles over the next five months, and I ran a 52-mile ultra marathon after that. And so because my life was so dramatically transformed. And so quickly I started calling it my miracle morning. I shared it with a coaching client. She went, Hal, I'm not a morning person, but I'll try it. I'll give it a shot for a week. 
a week later, she said, Hal, I, I am, I can, I'm, I'm, I think, I think I'm a morning person now. She said, I'm thinking I'm a morning person. Like I'm, I'm actually, like you said, I'm up, I'm up every morning. I actually love it. I'm excited. I'm energized. This is great. And you know, fast forward, it's, that's been five years ago and now tens of thousands of people, in fact, it's probably over a hundred thousand people around the world do the miracle morning every day. And I get hundreds of emails every week from people saying just recently, got off my depression medication and anxiety medication, um, lost 20 pounds, um, read three books in the, I mean, just people are, are, you know, whatever they apply the miracle morning to whatever their goal is or their focus, it just turbocharges the results. So th th that's kind of where I'm at now. Mm. So if your past self from any point that we've talked about today could see your current self, what would surprise him the most? Dude, he, he would be like, he never imagined that he would get to the, this level. Like, he and I don't, I don't, I don't even like the way that sounds, but but I mean, he, you know, he would, I think he would be surprised that a what I'm doing now with my life, right? Like, early on, I'd be like, Whoa, you're a keynote speaker and an author, and you host a podcast, like, what that's crazy, right? Um, but I think the biggest thing is, Wow, like you're living the dream, like you're living your dream, you know, like I've had the dream for 10 years to, to, to do what I do now, and it's been a long, you know, they say it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. One of my favorite phrases because everybody wants to be an overnight success overnight, you know, and, you know, and, and I mean, most people that are living an extraordinary life, you know, you all of a sudden they come into your life and you're like, wow, I never heard of them. So they, they seem like an overnight success, but you really find out they've been working ups and downs and failure and success and, you know, grinding for, you know, whether it was five years or 10 years or whatever it was. I mean, Chris Angel, I saw a quote where he says, it's funny, but it took me 15 years to be an overnight success, right? You know, my Josh Ship, my friend who hosts a TV show, said it took him 10 years to be an overnight success. Vanilla Ice, I saw a quote the other day. Vanilla Ice said, people thought I was overnight success, but I was an opening act for four years, getting paid almost nothing before I signed a record deal and, and became an overnight success, right? So, so, so I think that, you know, that, that, that it would surprise me that I was living my dream uh, you know, and, and that I, you know, and that, and that, that I was just barely getting started. Like, you know, my vision is to change the world one morning at a time. And, and that's what I'm committed to. Well, I can't think of a better place to wrap it up. Anything else you want to say? Um, don't wait. Don't wait to be great. If you're listening to this, the number one cause of unfulfilled potential, I believe, is never deciding that now matters more than any other time in your life. Because it does. Right. If not now, when? And the most important thing I think you can do is dedicate time, schedule 30 minutes every day, whether it's in the morning, you're doing a miracle morning or in the whatever. I mean, I think the morning is ideal, but schedule time every day to read books, to exercise, to work on becoming the person that you need to be that is capable of creating the most extraordinary life that you can imagine because you truly deserve nothing less. But if you don't decide that now is your time, you know, what makes you think that tomorrow or next week or next year will be any different? They won't. So today is the day. Draw your line in the sand. Get clear on what you want for your life, what you have to do, and commit to doing it. Hal, well, thank you so much. Before I let you go, where can we keep in touch? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, uh, join us. First, I would say join us in the Miracle Morning community. It has become the most positive, engaged supportive online community I have ever seen. We have over 12,000 members, over 100 people every day from around the world asked to join. And it's so engaged. Like you, if you go on there and you post a question, I've seen people get like 70 answers to their question and they're brand new to the group. They don't know anyone in it. And they'll, they'll be like, hey, I'm having a challenge. What do I do? And they get 70 people giving them advice. And it's crazy. So join the Miracle Morning community on Facebook. Make sure you use the word community because there's a Miracle Morning fan page. But that's not where the action happens. Um, if you want to buy the Miracle Morning book or read the reviews, there's we have 800 reviews now. Um, go to Amazon.com. That's the best place to buy it. And then um, if you want to get in touch with me personally, HalElrod.com is a great way to do it. And the last thing I'll share is a gift. If you know, if anybody's listening and if you're in a tough spot where money's really tight, you're not ready to buy the book, or if you're skeptical and you're like, yeah, I don't know if I buy it, all this, right? Go to MiracleMorning.com and you can get the Miracle Morning Fast Start Kit for free. You get the first few chapters of the book for free to get you started. You get a 17-minute training video from me and a 60-minute in-depth audio from me all on the Miracle Morning. So you can start before, you know, you don't have to read the book to get started. Just go to MiracleMorning.com and you can, you know, you can get started with the practice and decide if you want to, you know, go deeper with it. 
Well, again, Hal, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fantastic. Harley, I appreciate you. And everyone that listened, thank you so much for your time, your attention, your energy. Uh, I, I really hope that you got some value today. And, and I hope that I'll see you in the Miracle Morning community on Facebook. guys like that i thought that was a really cool one Hal's such a great he's so articulate he's a public speaker as he mentioned so he just knows how to tell a good story i was really captivated during that interview and i hope you guys were really captivated listening and how if you're listening to this i appreciate you taking the time to do this so so much it really means a lot i know you mentioned in this during this that you do hundreds of podcasts that kind of blew my mind um but i'm glad I'm glad you took the time to do this one and that you enjoyed yourself and that you told some new stories. Um, For all of you listening out there, go to peopleshow.co for more information. Hashtag PWM22 on Facebook and Twitter is where you can talk about this episode and see some of Hal's most inspiring, interesting quotes that I pulled out, as always. And go to booksmatter.co and search for The Miracle Morning. And you can download that for free. And it supports the show more than you guys realize. So I really, really appreciate all of you who have done that. And all of you who are about to go do that. And check out Hal's new book. Not new book, but his amazing book. And I just want to remind you guys that I've been using what I've learned on my own. And through these interviews. To help people like you identify what lights them up. How to make a career out of it. And then gain the skills and create a game plan to make it actually happen. Hal and I talked about this a lot today. If you want to work with me on doing that in your own life, I would be honored to talk to you. There's no obligation. Just go to harleyeblen.com slash contact or get in touch with me any way you know how and fill out a form. Let me know and we can hop on the phone and talk about you. There's no obligation. So I really look forward to chatting with you about that soon. In the next episode, I have a friend of mine, Hannah Reed, who's a fantastic musician who's got a fantastic Scottish accent. So that makes up for some great listening and she's got some great stories. So I really hope to be talking to you guys next week. And until then, have an amazing week. Take care. I'll talk to you next time.